Greetings again in the Lord Jesus. You can turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 26. This uh, passage is not about communion. It's not even about the Passover, which maybe is the, the most clear Old Testament ordinance that relates to communion. But it is about an ordinance that uh, the Lord directed his Old Testament people to keep and just a number of parallels there that uh, reminded me of communion. And so we're going to look at it, use it as a springboard to remind us of the things we want to think about this morning. For my title, I'm using a, a phrase from the New Testament, when you bring your gift to the altar, when you bring your gift to the altar. Comes out of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, when you bring your gift to the altar, if you remember your brother has aught against you, you go take care of it first. Well, and I'm just thinking about this morning, we are bringing our gift to the altar. And this passage is about the first fruits, the offering of the first fruits. They were bringing their gift. They were supposed to take the first of the ripened grain, probably some other things too, and give it to the Lord. It was a recognition that it was all his anyway. It was a symbol of giving themselves the first fruits, symbolized the first and the best, but it also symbolized the rest that was to come. It was to remind them where they came from and what God had done. So let's read Deuteronomy 26. Well, we'll read 1 to 11. And it shall be when thou art come in unto the land which the Lord thy God gives thee for an inheritance and possesses it and dwellest therein that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the earth which thou shalt bring of thy land that the Lord thy God giveth thee and shalt put it in a basket and shalt go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name there. And thou shalt go unto the priest that shall be in those days and shall say unto him, I profess this day unto the Lord thy God that I am come into the country which the Lord swear unto our fathers for to give us. And the priest shall take the basket out of thine hand and shall set down before the altar of the Lord thy God. And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, Assyrian ready to perish was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto the Lord God, our fathers, Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terribleness and with signs and with wonders. And he hath brought us into this place and hath given us this land, even a land that floweth with milk and honey. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which thou, O Lord, hast given me, and thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God, and worship before the Lord thy God. And thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee, and unto thine house, thou and the Levite, and the stranger that is among you. All right, the tells of their worship when they brought their gift to the altar, and ours this morning as we bring our gift to the altar. And maybe we don't think real often about a worship service as bringing a gift. 
But the New Testament does talk about the fruit of our lips being a gift to God, praise to God. Well, first, as we, as we come this morning and bring our gift to the Lord, let's remember God's love and faithfulness. That was part of what they were to do in verse 3. I profess unto the Lord thy God that I am come into the country which the Lord sware to our fathers for to give us. They were to recognize God's sovereign leading, his promise keeping in regards to the promises he'd made. He brought them out, he brought them in. Here am I in the land God promised to give, even though it looked completely impossible when the promising was done. Verse three, I guess we could say is the council meeting. Here they're giving their testimony. I confess that God has done what he said he's going to do. He's brought us in. Well, here we are today, children of the promise, children of the king, bought and redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus. And so we come and we make our offering. He commands us to make this observance today once we have come into the land. And yes, this observance belongs to those who are in, those who are in the body of Christ. And we come to the altar and we acknowledge again God's gift to us. God's faithfulness in giving it, in offering it, in keeping his promise, and giving it to us when we came to him. He sent the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to die for us, for me. And so we acknowledge again his love and his faithfulness, his promise keeping. We are in the land. In the land of promise, it's overflowing with milk and honey, with many blessings. Once in a while we forget and our faces look a little long and uh, sometimes we complain and things like that. We ought not. <laughs> every spiritual gift, we're receiving every spiritual blessing in the Lord Jesus if we're in him. So as we bring our gift to the altar this morning, let's remember God's love and faithfulness the way they were to remember. Well, as we bring our gift to the offering, secondly, let's call to mind the plight that the Lord saved us out of. And you see here in verses 5 and 6, our father Jacob was ready to perish when he went down into Egypt. God saved him then. But then in Egypt, the bondage, the, the terrible bondage that they were in, they were enslaved, they were mistreated. When they brought their gift to the altar, they were to look back and to say, that's where we came from. That's some good, too, to look back and to remember what it was like without the Lord. We were lost, hopeless, alone, unhappy. Well, maybe some of us can't remember all of that all too well, but we can look around us and we can see how people today live without the Lord. And there, except for the grace of God, is where we would be. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all going out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. That was us too. And the end of those, the end of us, the Lord hadn't delivered us. 
The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. It does us good to remember what we've been delivered from as we partake this morning too. Where would we be today without the Lord Jesus? And we don't know that. But again, we can look around and we can see some others who don't know the Lord and where they are. And we can begin to guess. So let's remember where we've come from that the Lord translated us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's don't forget what the Lord saved us from. Thirdly then, as we bring our gift to the altar, let's remember our cry. Verse 7, and when we cried unto the Lord, to the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice, he looked on our affliction, he delivered us. They were to remember that. And we need to remember too that we cried. We got to the end of ourselves. We got so miserable that we, couldn't, we knew we couldn't do it. We hit rock bottom. We admitted that we were sinful, that we were lost, and we cried to the Lord, and he delivered us. He saved us out of our sins and made us new. And we shouldn't forget that. Neither should we forget that we still are weak. We still need that same mercy every day. We still need that grace of the Lord. We still need to cry. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And through the Psalms, you find it fairly often, maybe, well, I haven't counted, but the, I marked them in my Bible one time, and it showed up pretty often, something like this. I cried unto the Lord, and he saved me. Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon the rock and established my goings. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and shall trust in the Lord. When we come to bring our gift to the altar, let's don't forget our cry that the Lord heard us, that he will hear us. Fourthly then, as we bring our gift to the altar, let's remember the mighty way that God delivered us. <coughs> so verses seven and eight, when I cried, the Lord heard, and he brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with great terribleness, with signs and with wonders. And for them, they look back to deliverance from Egypt as their great event of salvation. They thought about the plagues and Pharaoh's constant refusals to let them go. They thought about the plague, the firstborn dying. They thought about the Red Sea. And they thought about how God brought them out in miraculous ways when it seemed totally impossible. For us, we remember Jesus. We remember that kiss of betrayal 
And we remember the hatred and the lies, the mockery, the spitting, the slapping, the crown of thorns, the scourging, the purple robe, <laughs> carrying the cross, falling down under it, the nails, the thirst, the agony, and the cry at the end, it is finished. But more than that, we remember that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. We remember that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We remember how God anointed him with the Holy Ghost and with power. He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, and God was with him. But we remember that he said, I am among you as he that serveth. And I do always those things that please him. We remember that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 men at once. After that, he was seen of James and all the apostles. We remember that he ascended up on high and that he is even now at the right hand of God interceding for us. We remember that he was delivered for our offenses. Sorry, it's not the one I wanted just right yet. We remember that if, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. Can't quite quote it, need to find it again. <laughs> All right, here we go. If, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The one who died and rose again, if he died to save us, he's alive now to keep us saved. We remember that this morning. If God be for us, who can be against us? We remember that he was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We remember that through him we are raised up together and made to set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. We remember that he has made us partakers of the divine nature, that he is our life, we remember that when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear in glory with him. And we also remember that as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. So as we partake this morning, let's remember 
mighty way God brought about our deliverance, and, and some of the things are included in that, as they remembered. Well, fifthly, let's rejoice this morning that God brought us in after taking us out. Looking at verses well, 9, 10, and 11, but 9 especially, and he brought us into this place. It's not just that he delivered us from sin, from its power, but he brought us in. Delivered us from its sin and power and brought us into the kingdom, into victory, into everyday holiness of life, and into being an honor for him by the way we live. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. The picture I get there is, is the church being a showcase to all those powers of God is saying, this is how it's done. This is what I meant to do. Look on it. Glorify God. And far too many professing Christians today never quite come in. They focus on the God bringing us out and now I'm going to glory, but they somehow don't get. They still live in defeat, not caring about sin, not caring about their wrong attitudes, not caring about their poor relationships. And we can fall into that too when we let self get too big. But this is a blessed land that the Lord brought them into, a land flowing with milk and honey. And for us, every good thing, every spiritual blessing is ours through the Lord Jesus. And we are in him. We are in his body. I'm going to read a few verses from Ephesians 2, the latter part of the chapter. We often read the beginning part more, I think. I'm going to come back to that, uh, to Deuteronomy, though. Thinking about being in the body. And we'll start in verse 11, Ephesians 2. And this is talking especially about the Jews being made one or the Gentiles being made one in the same body as the Jews. I think it, it applies to all of us because we're all brought in from the outside. None of us were in to start with. So verse 11, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called the uncircumcision by that which was called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, and being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of the commandments contained in ordinances to make in himself of, of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace unto you which were far off and to them which were nigh. <laughs> peace to you which were far off and to them which were nigh. Sometimes we talk about people coming in from outside, and I think about that when I read this passage. There is no difference. God has made us one. Whether we were nigh, whether we grew up in a Mennonite family, or, or whether we did not, uh, it's still one body, and God has brought us in to that body. For through him, 
Verse 18, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit, in whom we are built together, a place for God to dwell. He brought us in, a part of the brotherhood, together fellowshipping around the Lord Jesus, living together in a way that shows that these members of the body are a body, part of the body of Christ. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, the bread which we break, is it not the communion, the fellowship of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, and we all are partakers of that one bread. So as we partake this morning, let's rejoice that God has brought us in, into the body, into the kingdom, into his mercy, into his blessings. And then as we bring our gift to the offering this morning, let's give to the Lord the offering that he wants. As you look at this passage, you can look at verse two, the first of the fruit, you can look at verse 4. You have this basket of those first fruits. You can look at verse 10 where we say, Now I have brought the first fruits of the land. God wanted the first fruits, that's right. But he wanted more than that. He wanted their hearts. He wanted everything. Let's just read the rest of the chapter. The subject changes to tithing, but when you get to the end of the chapter especially, it kind of caps off both. So, Verse 12, when thou hast made an end of tithing all the tithes of thine increase the third year, which is the year of tithing, and hast given unto the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that they may eat within thy gates and be filled, then shalt thou say before the Lord thy God, I have brought away the hallowed things out of mine house, and have also given them unto the Levite, unto the stranger, to the fatherless, to the widow, according to all thy commandment which thou hast commanded me. I have not transgressed thy commandments, neither have I forgotten them. I have eaten there, I have not eaten thereof in my morning, neither have I taken away aught thereof for any unclean use, nor given aught thereof for the dead, but I have hearkened to the voice of the Lord my God, and have done according to all that thou hast commanded me. Look down from thy holy habitation from heaven, and bless thy people Israel, and the land which thou hast given us, as thou swearest unto our fathers, a land that floweth with milk and honey. This day the Lord thy God hath commanded thee to do these statutes and judgments. Thou shalt therefore keep and do them with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Thou hast avouched this day to be thy God. Sorry. Thou hast avouched the Lord this day to be thy God and to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and to hearken unto his voice. And the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he hath promised thee, and that thou shouldest keep all his commandments, and to make thee high above all nations which he hath made in praise and in name and in honor, and that thou mayest be an holy people unto the Lord thy God, as he hath spoken.
As we bring our gift to the altar, let's give him the gift he truly wants. He wanted more than just the first fruits. He wanted their lives. He wanted them to come to him in faith, complete reliance on him. He wanted a uh, verse 16 type of commitment to keep and to do them with all thy heart and with all thy soul. As I read down over verses 13 and 14 especially, I noticed that they talked about some of, some of those little rules, little rules, to call them that, that the Lord had made. I don't know if they knew exactly why they were given, but they said, we haven't done it, we've obeyed. They loved the Lord. They wanted to do what's right. They were following heart and soul, or that's at least what he wanted here. He's telling them to do this in the future. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, your reasonable worship. So verse 15, he says, I have done it. Look down from my holy habitation and bless thy people Israel. Lord, I've obeyed you, bless your people. And then you come to verse 17. By these acts of worship, thou hast avouched this day. You have solemnly proclaimed that the Lord is your God. You're going to walk in his ways. You're going to keep his statute, his commandments, his judgments. You're going to hearken to his voice. And then turns right around and says, and the Lord has solemnly proclaimed something too. The Lord hath avouched to thee this day to be his peculiar people, and so on. So when you bring your gift to the altar, as we bring our gifts to the altar, let's remember our great God, his love, his faithfulness, he's done what he promised. Let's remember where we came from, where we'd be without the Lord. Let's remember our cry how we got to the point where we had to come to the Lord total dependence, not trusting ourselves at all, and that we still need to do that. Let's remember our mighty deliverer, his suffering, his death, the way he delivered us. Let's rejoice that he brought us out and that he brought us in. Let's praise him for victory, for the brotherhood, for being a part of the body of Christ. And let's give God the sacrifice that he really wants, our very lives. <clears throat> All right. Before we go to the communion service, uh, we're going to go out and wash our hands again. All of us who will be in charge, uh, we can have a song in the meantime. You may open your Bibles to John 13. <clears throat> I don't know how it feels to you. There's such a thing as holy ground or sacred ground here in our experience now, but here in the midst of our communion service feels that way to me. We've just commemorated the broken body, the shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now we will spend a few moments meditating on his act of service to his disciples, an example for us to follow 
and you say, who is worthy? Who is worthy to participate in these things? We are only because we have experienced the cleansing of that shed blood and the healing of that broken body from a life of sin. John chapter 13, I'll read the first six verses to begin. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he, Jesus, riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. And after that he poured water into a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet, and wiped them with the towel wherewith he was girded. I'll stop reading there at verse 5. Let's think together about the setting. Here we have Jesus about to partake of the fast of the Passover, or in that setting, we don't. It isn't exactly clear what part of the Passover, what part of the evening this took place. But Jesus was here, and the setting of his life at this time was he knew the moment for which, or the event for which, he had been sent to earth. The primary event was about to unfold. And what was about to unfold was his arrest. The, the agony in Gethsemane, the prayer, the surrender of his will again to the Father, the arrest, and following the arrest, the abandonment of his disciples, then the trial, the scourging, and the cross. Four things lay ahead of Jesus as he implemented this act of service. That's what he was facing. Let's think a bit about what was going on in the minds of the 12 disciples who were there with him. I invite you back to Luke 22. That hasn't been read today, so I'll read it quickly. Give us a setting of what uh, was going on in the minds of the disciples. Luke 22, we'll drop in at verse 14. And when the hour was come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with him, and he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So there again, Jesus is saying, I'm in the hour before my suffering. For I say unto you all, not eat any more thereof until it be fulfilled, till it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which was shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me at the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Now verse 23. What was going on in the minds of the disciples? And they began to inquire among themselves as which should do this thing. And there was strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. 
And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is the greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that setteth at meat or he that serveth, is it not he that setteth at meat? But I, Jesus, am among you as one that serveth. So in contrast to Jesus' comprehension of knowing what lay before him, there was still this, this underlying tension among the disciples as to who would be the greatest. And I find it both fascinating and disappointing at the same time that even up until the Last Supper, that's what was going on in their hearts and minds. And as I thought about those two contrasts of, of perception coming into this event, suddenly this feet washing became even more meaningful to me as I realized what Jesus was actually doing to these men, uh, maybe in a, in a, in a more uh, intense way than I've ever thought about before. It says here in verse 1 that he loved them until the very he loved them until the very end. He showed them the full extent of his love right up until his suffering. That's what he was facing. You see, some rabbis taught that to wash the feet of servants was too lowly of a position for even a Jewish servant to perform. Many, some rabbis taught that that was a position that should be reserved for the, for the alien, for the foreigner, for the, for the immigrant worker. A Jew shouldn't need to do that. And as I understood that better, then it's helped me to understand a little bit better Peter's reaction. How did Peter react to this? Peter struggled with this concept. But before we talk about Peter, let's think a little bit more about what Jesus did. In verse 4, Jesus riseth from supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel, and girded himself. Does that remind you of another passage of Scripture about Jesus? I've already quoted it once this morning. We'll look at it again. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Now that's the broad scope of what Jesus did when he came to earth. But in the context that we're looking at now, Jesus literally exemplified this verse we just read. Jesus took off his outer garment laid it aside, girded himself with a towel, and began to perform the lowliest task that was to be reserved for an immigrant slave. That was Jesus' example there in that setting. How many times did Jesus tell his disciples throughout his ministry that the path to greatness is only found through the life of, of humble servitude to those around him? Time and again, Jesus would teach that 
and teach that and exemplify that and teach that. And here again, he comes to the Last Supper and he again is showing them as his last act before his suffering that the path to greatness is in the life of the servant. And I think I can understand a bit better now why Peter said, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and sat down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done unto you? You call me Lord and Master, and you say, Well, for so I am. I'll stop reading there. We'll pick it up a bit, uh, the rest of it, in conclusion. You see, now Jesus transitions from example to instruction. He says in verse 15, For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. I have four translation Bible here in front of me. For I've given you this example that you should do in turn as I have done to you. For I've given you an example that you should do. I have set for you an example that you should do as I've done for you. All the translations give us the same message. Jesus humbled himself, took upon him the the role of the most lowly servant in the household and said, this is how you should relate one to another. Now verse 17 says this. Well, I'll start reading at verse 15. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I like how the NIV states verse 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now what's Jesus talking about? Just the, the ritual of going through the feet washing process? Or is Jesus referring to the entire discourse of teaching that he had here that was uh, a repetition of what he had been attempting to teach the disciples for two and a half years? that the path to greatness is through servitude and being a servant. He says, happy are ye, or blessed are you if you do these things. Now, leading up to this communion service, I have a tendency to sort of get my mind in a track and it'll kind of stay there for a while. I've been thinking about something. I've been thinking about the posture of feet washing. The posture of feet washing. So Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, came to earth and he gave us this example. He girded himself with a towel. And I don't think that you can wash another's feet standing up real well, but I think it looks something like this. 
As I thought more about the posture of feet washing, I thought about something else. The posture of feet washing is very much like the posture of repentance. You ever thought about that? Acknowledging our need for others. In Romans chapter 12, the third verse, it says, Let, esteem, let each esteem other better than himself. And then the verses following verse 3 of chapter 12 in Romans is about how the body of Christ is to work together. We being many members, we all fit together. But Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, moving through the pen of the writer of Romans, I like the way that it's laid out. Verse 1 of Romans tells us that we must have our lives on the altar. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Brother Keith talked about the offering, the, the sacrifice this morning. So Romans 12.1 tells us that we begin by giving our lives as a sacrifice. Romans 12.3 tells us that we must esteem others in the brotherhood better than ourselves. And then it gives us the rest of the chapter on how we relate to each other within the body. See, there was stress in a disciple's relationship because the posture of their hearts was not the posture of a servant who washes feet. So I thought this week, I thought about, we've probably all seen the drawing of a child sitting in the corner, by the way. Not a good way to discipline, but anyway. Child sitting, the Bible is a better way. Uh, a child sitting in the corner, and a little bubble is going up from his head, and he says, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Can I, and I had to ask myself the question, can, can I do that? Can I, can I have the outward posture? and be setting, but yet be standing up on the inside. And that's why I've been meditating on the posture of my heart. What's the posture of my heart? Is it one that's broken before God and my fellow man? Is it one that says, yes, I'll get on my knees and wash and dry your feet because I esteem you better than myself. I esteem you a child of God created in the likeness and image and redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. I esteem you as my brother in the Lord. See, Jesus showed us how to fix the problem of standing up on the inside. Jesus showed them how to fix the problem of stress between them. And he did it with a towel. You see, you can wash someone's feet very easily. You can stand back with the garden hose and spray them off, harsh and cold. But the towel is symbolic of tenderness. And the towel says, I care about you, rather than I'm just doing my duty. I care about you. So this morning, what is the posture of our hearts? Have we taken off self-esteem and girded ourselves with humility? 
What is the posture of my heart? Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne we pour our ardent prayers. Our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows a sympathizing tear. When we asunder part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. What is the posture of our hearts? <laughs>